Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this bonus TLS long read produced by Noah, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by Noah. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the Noah app or at newsoveraudio.com. You're listening to the TLS. This is Give Them Back. Did the Ottomans Preserve the Parthenon and Elgin Reckett by Mark Mazower from the issue of February the 10th, 2023? Mark Mazower is Ira D. Wallach, Professor of History at Columbia University. His most recent book, The Greek Revolution, 1821, and The Making of Modern Europe, published in 2021, won the Duff Cooper Prize. The Museum of the City of Athens has a somewhat neglected air. There is rather more life in the bustling Black Duck restaurant next door. Yet the museum is worth a visit, not least for a remarkable French painting which occupies pride of place on the ground floor. Around 18 feet long, and dating back to the late 17th century, it is said to be the earliest surviving panorama we have of the Ottoman town. In the foreground we see the French ambassador to the port, the Marquis de Nuantel, together with his entourage. In the background, the Acropolis looms on the skyline above the minarets. Discovered in a Paris antique shop, this remarkable work was attributed to the artist Jacques Carry, who is thought to have travelled to Athens in 1674 with the Nuantel, in order to make detailed sketches of the Parthenon marbles. These sketches survive, and unlike the painting, we can say with confidence that they were made by someone who was there. Completed over a period of weeks that winter, they are in fact carefully finished drawings which show the two pediments and many of the metopes that surround the Parthenon, thereby offering a valuable glimpse of the temple's sculptural decoration before the destruction that took place thirteen years later, when a Venetian cannonball landed on an Ottoman powder magazine on the site. 
As Who Saved the Parthenon makes clear, the French mission marked the moment at which Europe's fascination with Greek antiquity moved from the textual to the antiquarian. The Marquise de Nuantel was quickly followed by two travellers, Jacques Smon and Sir George Weller, who published the first accounts of the town to focus on the ancient remains. Through the 18th century, Greece still remained off the beaten track, but once the Napoleonic Wars put Italy out of bounds, for the British in particular, Athens became a place of pilgrimage, as visitors came to see what had survived, to record it, and to claim it for their own. Those of modest means might follow the advice books of the day and carry a small hammer to bring back a fragment or two. The more ambitious aimed higher. Coins, gravestones, statues, and even entire friezes were carted off from the eastern Mediterranean and shipped back to Western Europe. Wars on the battlefield were paralleled by the struggle to see who could obtain the most remarkable antiquities. The rise of the modern museum was one outcome of this competition. To those worried by the scale of the looting, there was a ready justification. Since the Ottomans were barbarians, and the modern Greeks not much better, it fell to the civilized nations of Europe to safeguard what really belonged to mankind as a whole. The most infamous case of all, that of the British ambassador Lord Elgin, was the subject of William St. Clair's first book. Based on Elgin's own papers, and published originally in 1967, it was a scholarly and even-handed account, both of the man and also of the sculpture's impact on their times. It has gone through several editions and remains a fabulous read. Yet over the decades, its message has dramatically changed as its author immersed himself ever more deeply in the saga of the marbles. In the first edition of Lord Elgin and the Marbles, St. Clair concluded that the Parthenon sculptures would be in a far worse state today if Elgin or someone else had not removed them. Two decades later, it was St. Clair himself who was to provide the most stunning attack on this view. In 1986, the then President of the Oxford Union, Boris Johnson, invited the Greek Minister of Culture to debate returning the marbles to Greece. The minister in question was the charismatic actress Melina McCory, and she opened her speech with a rousing declaration that there are no such things as the Elgin marbles. What they should really be known as, she explained, were the Parthenon marbles, and it was high time that they were reunited with their original home. William St. Clair was already busy investigating the infamous cleaning of the marbles of 1938-39, to which had been done at the behest of Lord Duveen, the donor of the gallery that was to house them. Thanks in good measure to St. Clair's efforts, there is today no doubt that in the name of beautifying them, the actions of museum staff caused the marbles irreparable harm. The scale of the damage was recognised by an internal museum inquiry that was then hushed up. It took St. Clair over a decade to wrest the relevant documents from the grasp of the British Museum, and the explosive result was a third and entirely rewritten edition of his 1967 study that ended with the devastating judgment that the British Museum's stewardship of the Elgin marbles turns out to have been a cynical sham. The marbles are making headlines again and recently there have been reports of serious discussions between the museum and the Greek government over a deal. The Vatican only recently announced that it would be returning three fragments of sculpture from the temple, further ratcheting up the pressure on London. 
Partly, this pressure is due to the political salience these days of restitution claims of all kinds. But much is also surely the result of the light that historians of collecting have shed in the past few decades on what the amassing of civilizational treasures really involved. The gap between the lofty rhetoric of the collectors and the often disturbing realities is much clearer today than it was in the past. It is hard to think of someone who has made a greater impact in this domain than St. Clair, an impact that was perhaps all the greater because of the unique position he occupied. A Whitehall Mandarin in the making, and an historian driven by passion rather than professional ambition. Evidently not a man afraid to change his mind when the evidence indicated it, St. Clair, who died in 2021, was a magnificent example of an almost extinct breed, the independent scholar. After Oxford, he embarked on a career in the civil service, but even at the Treasury, his passion for historical research was irrepressible. Lord Elgin and the Marbles was followed five years later by That Greece Might Still Be Free, a book which remains to this day unsurpassed as an account of European Philhellenism. Written in lucid and witty prose, with a gift for evoking place and personality, it possesses many of the qualities of a good novel. The Turks of Greece left few traces. They disappeared suddenly and finally in the spring of 1821, unmourned and unnoticed by the rest of the world. Who else would have commenced a study of the Philhellenes in this way, so full of human feeling and so alert from the outset to an aspect of the subject that remains neglected to this day? A lover of Greece, whose close familiarity with the land emerges here in the form of some of his own photographs from Athens, he, like Byron, whose work so gripped him, always understood his subject in a larger context. That St. Clair's interest in Greece was part of his very comprehensive commitment to the culture of European, and especially British, Romanticism became clear in the years that followed. First, there was his study of the extraordinary adventurer Edward Trelawney, the companion of Byron and Shelley. Research involved a fearless climb up the ancient ladder cut into the sheer rock face on Mount Parnossos to visit the cave where Trelawney took refuge during the Greek Revolution. Later came his family biography, The Godwins and the Shelleys. All this was fitted into the interstices of a high-flying Whitehall career, which involved entirely different kinds of expertise, resulting in the publication of Policy Evaluation, a guide for managers. One wonders how he managed it all. Early retirement expanded the time for scholarship, and allowed the extensive research that resulted in perhaps his most original and provocative work, The Reading Nation in the Romantic Period. One of the questions raised in this extraordinary analysis of the book business in the early 19th century was whether it is possible to see how reading changes the world, and one way of viewing who saved the Parthenon, besides its obvious utility in the campaign to get the British Museum to do the decent thing, is as an exploration of the power literary and cultural ideas may, at certain moments, assume in the political, diplomatic and even the military realm. Who Saved the Parthenon looks not so much at the marbles in London as at the temple they were taken from, and at the larger story of the Acropolis and its place in modern European culture. At the core of the book is an interesting question. Given the scale of the destruction wrought during the Greek struggle for independence, 
a struggle which reduced many towns to rubble and left most of Athens devastated, how can we explain the lack of injuries suffered by the great monuments of antiquity in the city? The short answer, according to St. Clair, is that it was thanks to the Sultan's government that they survived more or less intact. Elgin's justification is thus turned on its head. Those who saved the Parthenon in its moment of greatest peril were in fact those accused of endangering it, the Ottomans. It was men like Elgin who were the real destroyers. St. Clair is thus brought to consider not only the various Europeans who toured and wrote about the antiquities of Athens, a topic on which he brings all the authority of his vast learning, but, more interestingly, and unusually perhaps, the Ottomans themselves. He invites us to take a look at a subject which is only now beginning to attract the attention it deserves, what the Ottomans thought about the antiquities that had fallen under their control. The short answer is that the authorities were for a long time fundamentally indifferent to the ancient relics in their domains, which were indeed on occasions reused for construction, or allowed to be carted off by foreigners. But the archaeological gold rush of the first two decades of the 19th century marked a moment of transformation, as it became clearer to the Ottoman elite that many Europeans felt a special consideration for ancient things, to use the language of the young Rifat Pasha, writing from Vienna in the 1830s. This opened up opportunities of various kinds. In Janina, in northwestern Greece, Ali Pasha quizzed visitors about their interest in archaeology, supervised some rather disorganized digging at the site of the vast Roman town of Nicopolis, and decorated his sarai in nearby Preveza with finds from the site. His son, Veli Pasha, of the Morea was in on it too, digging in Argos, and negotiating with Danish archaeologists to excavate the temple at Barsai, whose friezes now also find themselves in the British Museum. As for the antiquities of Athens, they had been on the radar screen of the port for some years, since visitors habitually requested permission to visit sites to draw and measure them. The stated purpose of Elgin's Furman of 1801 reproduced in an appendix, was primarily to allow his artists to get on with this kind of work, and was clearly not intended to allow the large-scale removal of in-situ remains. It mentions permission to take away some pieces of stone with old inscriptions and figures. Indeed, the French ambassador, Marechal Brun, petitioned the port and successfully obtained another firman to prevent Elgin from actually demolishing the western porch to carry away even more sculptures. Who saved the Parthenon really begins, however, two decades after Elgin's intervention, at the point when the Greek Revolution broke out. The British ambassador, Lord Strangford, was worried, and asked the Grand Vizier to issue an order to ensure the preservation of the ancient monuments in Athens. This was done and heeded. Indeed, in November 1821, the governor of the Morea sent word back to Istanbul that he had regained control of Athens from the rebels, without causing any harm to the antiquities. Thus, from early on in the fighting, the Ottoman authorities showed themselves ready to do their part in preserving the city's monuments, and paying attention to the great power's wishes on the subject. There was then a lull from the summer of 1822, when the Greeks took the city back again, first besieging the Muslims, then getting them to surrender, and finally massacring them, until the summer of 1826, when the army of Rashid Pasha, having conquered 
and demolished what was left of the town of Messalongi, advanced towards Athens to besiege it once again. Concerned by the example of Messalongi's fate, the newly appointed British ambassador, Stratford Canning, became convinced that Rashid was prepared to mine the Acropolis and blow it up if that was needed for victory. Even if he did not, a sustained artillery barrage by the surrounding Ottoman howitzers and mortars could result in immense destruction. Canning thus took the irregular step of writing directly to him, requesting that he undertake to preserve those antique edifices which have justly fixed the admiration of mankind. To that, and a similar request by the French ambassador, Rashid was attentive, replying that he would do everything he could to avoid their destruction. Whether the Ottoman general really intended, as Canning thought, to inflict the devastation of Messalongi on Athens or not, it is clear that he upheld the commitment he made. As St. Clair shows, the first travellers to set foot in Athens, once the fighting was over, were uniformly struck by two things, the scale of destruction in the town, which was enormous and widespread, and the almost miraculous state of preservation of the ancient monuments. The book's central argument that this was not accidental seems persuasive. The diplomatic exchanges had served their purpose. I am not so sure about the explanations and Clare offers for why. What he argues is that there was an implicit bargain. The Ottomans saved the Parthenon because the Europeans suggested to them that this would win them recognition as a member of the civilized world. It would prove that they deserved to be treated as a European power and would bring them diplomatic leverage. His evidence for this is the reorientation in both European and Ottoman policy a few years later, in the era of the Tanzimat, the ever-intensifying British commitment to the empire's integrity in the face of threats from both Russia and Egypt, and the visible Europeanization of Ottoman diplomacy in the middle of the century. Yet did the salvation of the Parthenon really change so much? The war continued to be waged with enormous cruelty elsewhere, notably by Ibrahim Pasha in the Peloponnese. Any goodwill that accrued to the port through keeping the Parthenon safe was paltry compared with the impact of the horror stories reaching Europe as Greeks were sold into slavery and numerous villages were burned to the ground, leading tens of thousands to face starvation. Moreover, the Sultan would, as we know now from the work of a new generation of Ottoman historians, likely have pushed for imperial reforms in any case. The old order had demonstrated its flaws clearly enough in the botched war with the Greeks. As for the British supporting the empire, it was the temporary alignment of 1826 to 1827 with Russia against the Ottomans that was the exception, and it was forsaken as soon as its object, the stabilization of the eastern Mediterranean, was gained. The minute that the Ottomans had shown themselves willing to accept some form of statelet for the Greeks, the British were always likely to swing round to support them and return to their traditional anti-Russian posture. But the Parthenon was saved and the other outstanding monuments of Athens, too. St. Clair's book ends with a fascinating, if slightly haphazard, survey of how they fared in the decades that followed. The new Greek state intuitively understood the European cultural capital it had inherited at independence as guardian of, and putative successor to, the glories of ancient Greece. It lost no time in turning the Acropolis from a military garrison, its traditional function, to a reconstituted shrine to the classical origins of Europe. 
This involved not merely preservation, export bans, and the safeguarding and restoration of antiquities by a new National Archaeological Service, but also purification in the form of the demolition of the walls, towers, mosques, and other buildings that might interrupt a visitor's sense of communion with the ancient stones. Many of the numerous illustrations in Who Saved the Parthenon indicate the consequent losses. The old town wall, admittedly dating back only to the late 18th century, the small mosque inside the Parthenon itself, and, most strikingly, the so-called Frankish Tower and surrounding walls. All these, along with many tons of rubble, were cleared from view to create the unimpeded entrance to the classical site that millions of tourists now visit annually. It should be said that this is a sprawling book. There are frequent excursuses into topics more or less related to the central thesis, and it lacks the sense of drama and narrative control of St. Clair's best works. Yet it is a work of devotion, which touches on almost everything, from water sources to wildlife, that anyone interested in the Parthenon's recent past could want. A fine scholar and a man of great sensitivity to the strange paradoxes of history, William St. Clair surely knew what he was doing when he wrote a book that bolsters the case for the marble's restitution to Greece by attributing their survival to the Ottomans. You are listening to the TLS. This is Give Them Back. Did the Ottomans Preserve the Parthenon and Elgin Wreck It? By Mark Mazower, from the issue of February the 10th, 2023. It was read by Martin Buchanan for Noah.